You guys just had communion here. I promise you it's nothing like being at the garden tomb in Jerusalem and having communion on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Blows your mind. Super exciting. So if you can go, I encourage you to sign up. Trip of a lifetime. The first time you go to Israel, they call it the euphoric trip because literally you just feel like giddy, like a little kid, like, I'm in the land of Jesus in the Bible, I'm in the land, I'm on the Sea of Galilee, you're just like, you get a little stupid. But it's really fun because you're so excited. Hey, we're uh, reading through God's Word and the Anchored series, Happy New Year to everyone, and it's a great opportunity for you to start reading through God's Word. We actually ran out of uh, our anchored <laughs> pamphlets because so many people are grabbing them, which is a great thing. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Our servants team will get you one. Those who have a Bible, you're going to be turning to Matthew chapter 1 today as we look at our message, Grace for Family Drama. Now, we've had Thanksgiving, we've had Christmas, and I know that you guys are all normal people that don't have family drama. But somebody has said normal is just the setting on your dryer. Meaning most of us don't even know what normal baseline is all about anyway. And I want you to be encouraged as we look for grace for our family drama that Jesus comes from this family tree that is given to us in Matthew chapter 1 that is filled with these epic family drama stories about his grandparents, his great-grandparents, and all the drama that comes down in ways that you thought you had problems, you got... <laughs> Nothing on these people that Jesus descended from. And it's so important for us to understand that dynamic with our own family trees because sometimes as we are now on the first day of the year, we want to be looking forward, but a lot of people are dragging so much baggage from their past. Sometimes they're not very fruitful this coming year because they're always looking in their rearview mirror. There's an epic scene, if you haven't seen the movie Hitch with Will Smith, and Eva Mendez, he's trying to impress her, he takes her on a date, they go to Ellis Island, and because he knows the guard, he has the uh, registry of people that have come through Ellis Island and the name, so he finds her ancestor there, and the ancestor is the Butcher of Cadiz. Now, he thought her great-great-grandfather was a, a butcher, like at a butcher shop, but no, he was the butcher of Cadiz. He was like this serial or mass murderer or something. So he's trying to really impress her on this date. And, and she's looking at the book and she's going, oh, wow, wow. And she's going through and she sees it. And at this moment when she sees this relative, she starts making this funny. She goes, eh, eh. And she starts crying and she runs out of the building. And Will Smith said, I saw that going differently. I didn't think it was going to go that way. Because here's this ancestor that was the family embarrassment. The family embarrassment of maybe your life or even some of the baggage you're, you're dragging along. I want you to know that there is grace so that you don't have to live in that place. There's grace to be able to let go and move on in a way that your heart will be free so that you can fully offer yourself to the Lord without going through life, especially in this generation, we now live in a victim generation. Everybody's a victim. Oh, you don't know. I'm the adult child of fill in the blank, right? Of the alcoholic, of this or that. And um, I, I come from lots of family drama, 
So I always smile when people tell me about, I just came from a dysfunctional place in life. <laughs> Join the club, right? This guy, this, check out this picture. This is the guy that really raised me in my formative years. He's on a bull. This is uh, May 13th, 1972 here in Thousand Oaks. We were living over here at the Paramount Ranch. He was training horses. And, and he was a slash between a professional bull rider and my mom had married him when he just got out of San Quentin for armed robbery, kidnapping, and uh, multiple crimes. And so my mom meets him in a bar, marries him quickly. And so this is the guy that raised me. And so if you wonder what's wrong with me, <laughs> we're living over here at Paramount Ranch, and he's, he instantly marries a woman with four kids, and he doesn't know what to do with kids. So he pulls out a 15-foot bullwhip, and that's what he whipped us with was a 15-foot bullwhip. And uh, so fast forward, <laughs> this next scene is him when he just got arrested for stabbing a guy five times when I was going into the seventh grade. And uh, I thought, well, at least he stabbed him. He went to a construction job in Waterloo, Iowa. He stabbed this uh, bar owner uh, five times, two times in the back, three times in the chest and stomach. And so he's arrested for attempted murder. And you can't see his picture real well, but he's got, this, he's got this crazy criminal grin because he's just the bad boy. That's, that's who raised me. And, and I thought, well, at least I won't be embarrassed. And the next day, it was on the front page of our local paper because he had given our new address in our little hometown, Filer Man, and I just started school. And so I go to school, like, hey, isn't that your pop on the front page of the, stab the guy, yeah, that's him. So when you want to talk about family drama, you know, even back in the day, in the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as they were prophesying in similar periods of time, they both are addressed, a word was given to them by God about this phrase. And it's a word for every generation, but since we're living in this one, it's for this one. He says in Ezekiel 18, Verse 2, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. What he was telling them is to this generation, stop blaming all your problems on your parents because you're a big boy now. You're a big girl now, and stop saying your parents ate sour grapes and your teeth are set on edge. Your parents made a big mess. Maybe they failed you and let you down. You're all grown up now. How long are you going to ride that horse? Right? How long are you going to blame them for what a mess up you are today because of what they did back here? And if that is the case, any of us can build a case against our parents because there are no perfect parents. I have a simple phrase as I look at my dysfunction junction. My mom's married four times, my dad's married three times, we have seven marriages, we have step everythings, right? And people are like, <laughs> something good must have happened in your life. I said, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus saved me from the big mess. <clears throat> now, realizing that, I, I can't go through life blaming them. Then this crazy thing happens, you guys, then you have kids. And then they start building their case against you. <laughs> right? You're sitting there throwing all these rocks at your parents, and then you get some kids, and you know what? They got some rocks of their own. Why? Because you're not perfect. Anybody told you that lately? 
you're not perfect. And you threw rocks at your parents, your kids. It's like a rock fest throughout life, people throwing rocks at the next generation. Because this is the fact, Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And a lot of times people are blaming things on their folks. And the person that is a real culprit in their current difficulties is the guy they look at in the mirror, the girl they look at in the mirror. Because it's time that you take ownership for your own life. Take own responsibility for your own life. And this is the good news for the grace for the family drama, that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Isn't that great? You know, another way to say that is you can't out-sin God. No matter how big a mess you've made with your kids, and all of us have serious blunders with our kids, right? And so there's enough grace to cover all those things. Well, having prepped you for this grace for family drama, would you stand with me? We're going to read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, as we look at Jesus' family tree, and we look at five stories that stand out as epic, drama-filled situations from our Savior's family tree. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah, and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. And Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts now and that you would pour out grace on every man and woman in this room. Lord, help us to forgive, to let go, to move on, to take responsibility, to live the victorious life that you've designed for each one of us, and to let go of the victim mentality that is plaguing our nation. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this, the first one we check out, we find in verse 3, and it's the father-in-law's and the daughter-in-law's affair. Now, that's somewhat inflammatory and provocative just on its face, but the way that it happens in verse 3, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, in most genealogies in uh, Jewish history, in the scriptures, women are rarely, rarely mentioned. The family line is given through the men. But specifically in this passage of scripture, there are four women that are mentioned, and each one of them are an epic story. And this one in particular, Judah begot uh, Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, Judah of the tribe of Judah, he is the leader of the largest tribe he is going to, Jesus ultimately is going to come from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so Judah is an epic character. Now he married this girl by the name of Shua, and Shua had three sons, and then she passed away. And uh, they wanted to do their prearranged marriage, so the first son that they had was named Ur. Now Ur, they betrothed to Tamar. So Ur and Tamar got married. Now it says that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord killed him. He doesn't tell us what he did. Must have been bad. Boom, he's just dead. Okay? Now because they have the law of the Leverite, which is the son marries the woman if the brother dies without an heir to carry on the family name. So 
Judah gives the nextborn, whose name is Onan. So Ur dies because he's wicked. Onan marries Tamar. So two boys, same girl. And now because Onan says to himself, you know, if I get her pregnant, it's not going to be my son. It's going to be my brother Ur's. And so he did old school preventative pregnancy, Planned Parenthood, 4,000 years ago, right? Which he admitted his semen on the ground instead of inside of her, and it displeased the Lord, and the Lord killed Onan. Now, if you're a father-in-law, and your son, firstborn Ur, dies, and you give Tamar another son, Ur, and he di- or, uh, Onan, and he dies, I'm thinking, this chick can't cook, Right? <laughs> Like, she's killing my boys. There's something seriously wrong, okay? And so he tells her, he's a little suspicious. Now, Sheila, his, old, his youngest son, is not quite old enough to get married, so he tells Tamar, you just enjoy your widowhood. I'll let Sheila grow up, and when he grows up, he'll marry you. I'm thinking, he's thinking how long, maybe she'll die of her own cooking. I don't know, but I don't want to give her my baby boy. So Tamar realizes this, huh, he's not going to give me Sheila, Sheila's grown up now. They should be getting married. So Tamar takes things into her own hands. She hears that Judah and his buddy Hira are coming up to shear the sheep. And so she goes out. She puts on this prostitute's veil. And she sits by the road. And Judah's wife, Shua, has just died. So he's lonely. His wife has died. He's a mourning widower. And he comes by and he sees this girl. And she's a prostitute. It's not. It's actually his daughter-in-law with a veil over her face going to have sex with a father-in-law. Ooh, can you say ooh with me? Right? Just think about your father-in-law, ladies, and go ooh. I mean, not because you don't love him as a father-in-law, but you don't want to necessarily go to bed with him, correct? But Tamar, she brings him in, and, and he's, she's like, well, what are you going to give me a payment for? And he goes, well, I forgot my American Express at home. Uh, he says, Here, here's my belt, here's my staff, here's my signet ring, and I'll send Hira, my buddy, back with a young goat. Is, is that a deal, young goat? And she's like, okay, we'll go to bed for a young goat. So they go to bed. One time, she gets pregnant. Now, it's told Judah, Judah, you know your daughter-in-law who's supposed to be saving herself from your, for your youngest, Sheila? She's pregnant. She's been sleeping around the hussy. And this is Judah's compassion. He says, burn her alive. This is old school primitive biblical stories, right? And Tamar goes, okay, if you're going to burn me alive, tell Judah that the father owns this belt, this staff, and this signet ring. And he gets his own belt, his own staff, and his own signet ring. He goes, oh, snap. She was the prostitute by the... My daughter-in-law seduced me, and now I'm the, fa- I'm the father of my wife's... My, my son's wife, and they have this child. Now, that's not your normal... You weren't... That wasn't happening at Thanksgiving, hopefully, at your home. <laughs> you, t- you might... Talk about drama, right? I mean, this is very dramatic, crazy stories, And that's why it's a tough story. When you're teaching through Genesis, especially in Sunday school, chapter 37 of Genesis is the epic life of Joseph, and it starts back up at chapter 39, but 38 is this whole 
red light district type of story that you just skip in Sunday school because <laughs> you don't really want to talk about it. But Judah is going to go on to be the tribe that the very person that is the dispenser of grace for fallen people is going to come from. Jesus is going to come from, from this tribe, from Judah, from his great-great-grandfather, if you will. We move forward just a little bit, not very far in verse 5. We have the prince and the prostitute. Now, this lady is not pretending to be a prostitute. She's legit. I mean, she's got street cred from her history. Her name's Rahab. It says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Once again, genealogies usually do not have women listed in them in the scriptures, and they're here because to each one of them is a story of a fallen man and a fallen woman somehow experiencing redemption. And in this story, Salmon is the, once again, he is, his father is Nashon. He is the leader of the largest tribe of Judah, about 74, 75,000 people. And his son, heir apparent, the prince, is Salmon. Now they go conquer Jericho, and who survives the Jericho battle? Only Rahab and her family that she could recruit into her apartment because she took care of the spies. She hid the spies. So the Lord promised that her and her family would be rescued. And so after the battle, here Rahab is now embraced by the tribe of Israel. But the, the, the two, two spies that went there, her house was a house of prostitution. And she was filled with faith. It's like this gal that was living this immoral lifestyle, had heard about the glorious God of Israel, and she had put her faith in him. And she wanted to help the people of God, and she wanted to walk with God, and God was gonna take her broken life and bring healing to her life and to change her life, no doubt, to be swept off her feet by the very prince of all Israel, Salmon. Now, this is a great Bible story, but moms... If Salmon brings a career prostitute home for Thanksgiving and says, we're in love, mom, it's a thing. She's newly converted to faith in Jesus and, uh, you know, Old Testament style, the God of Israel, and we're going to get married. Now, mom and dad, how are you dealing with that? You thought it was great she protected the spies. You thought it was great she saved her family. You thought it was great that she embraced an Israel. But now she's going to marry your baby boy. <laughs> not. <laughs> Somebody says not. <laughs> but isn't our lives, now we have in this room people with very colorful backgrounds. We have in the room maybe somebody that was a pole dancer somewhere and they got saved and they're in church now. We have somebody that lived a very immoral lifestyle, say, fill in the blank, and now they're saved. And now you're married to somebody and God has restored your life. You see, everybody in this room has a past, has a history. Now, some were raised in the church, and fortunately, their life is the kind of testimony that most of us want, is one without a lot of baggage. But most people don't come to Jesus that way. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was ministering, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who were extremely religious would not believe in John the Baptist, his forerunner, and they would not believe in Jesus 
But the tax collectors, the sinners, and the prostitutes, and the broken lives, and the people who had made a train wreck of their lives desperately wanted grace. They wanted forgiveness. They wanted redemption. Because the Bible says those who are forgiven much love much. When God forgives you of a life that is so dark, there is an overwhelming love that flows forth from you for him and for his people and for service. Redemption is the most powerful dynamic that a human can experience. From a life of bondage and sin to the redemption of being purchased by the blood of Jesus. The next story is about a farmer and the immigrant or the alien coming from another country. Also in verse 5, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Now, Boaz was the most eligible bachelor in the small town of Bethlehem. He was a wealthy landowner. He was not married. He was older, kind of past that midlife place and hadn't maybe found the right gal yet. And Ruth, who is a Moabite. Now, the law says in Deuteronomy 23, because the Moabites and the Ammonites did not bring bread and water to the children of Israel when they escaped from Egypt, God had cursed them and they could not enter the congregation of the Lord till the 10th generation. Serious curse. And yet here, Ruth the Moabite, she marries one of uh, Naomi's sons. Now, Elimelech, they had, through a drought, they had fled to Moab, and Naomi the mom and her husband Elimelech, well, Elimelech died, and then they had two boys, Malon and Chilion. Now, you know the boys are not going to do well when Malon and Chilion mean sickly and pining away. The boys were not healthy. That's what they named them, sickly and pining away. So, can you imagine? Hey, I'm proposing. Well, you're a little sickly. How long are we going to be married, right? But Ruth and Orpah, which if you know the story about Oprah, they wanted to name her after Orpah, and her name was spelled wrong, so Or, you know, Oprah Winfrey was supposed to be named after Orpah, according to her life story. And here, Ruth, who is a Moabite, they have so much grief. The father has died, the two boys have died, and now... Naomi says to the two daughter-in-laws, hey, go back to your family, go back to your gods. I'm going home to Bethlehem. I'm brokenhearted. Don't call me pleasant. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. I'm bitter at the loss. Maybe you've had some loss in this last year. Lost some people you loved. A brother, a husband, a father, a mother. I've had loss this last year. Losing my mom. She went home to be with the Lord. The crazy guy that I showed you on the bull the criminal who was really the guy that raised me. I buried them about six weeks apart from each other as my brother and I did the funeral for these two. And when you have the backwash of that grief, sometimes you're just kind of thinking about your own mortality and all these things, and Naomi just wants to go home, but Ruth has seen something in Naomi and her faith in God, and Ruth says, I'm going with you. Your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. I'm forsaking Moab. I'm coming home with you. They go to Moab, and then they have to glean, because poor people in that day, you didn't get welfare. You didn't, there's, there's no sub, subsidies. You had to go glean in fields to work, and so Ruth goes out, she starts gleaning in the barley field, but it happens to be Boaz's field, who's a kinsman redeemer, which means he's a close relative, that he can marry her in their culture. 
So he blesses her. He tells the guys, drop handfuls on purpose. She comes home with a basket full of barley. And Naomi said, what field did you go to today? Because gleaning doesn't go that way. She goes, well, it's this guy by the name of Boaz. She's like, your knight in shining armor. He's the guy. He's the most eligible bachelor in Bethlehem. You got to marry this guy. She's like, yeah, but I'm a Moabite. Will he accept me? The story goes on. He ends up marrying her. And it's a fairy tale, really, for Ruth. But Ruth is this Moabite that was supposed to be cursed of the 10th generation. And by God's grace, she comes into the very family line of the Lord Jesus. You see, sometimes people think that even their backgrounds or their nationalities or being people that are separated from the goodness of God, there's nothing that can separate you from God's love. There's no nationality or language or economic barriers. God's love will bring you into his grace. So you have this story of the farmer and the immigrant, which really turns into a real fairy tale. And then in verse 6, we have probably the most famous story, because some of you have not even known the few stories I've shared with you. But in verse 6, we have the, the king and the beauty queen. Very seldom does the Bible describe a woman or a man's uh, appearance in either handsome or beautiful terms. But for Bathsheba, the Lord describes her as beautiful in form, that means her figure, and appearance, that means her face. It says this of Joseph too. Joseph was handsome in form. He had this, you know, cut, looked jacked, looked like he came out of a gym. But he had these G-Q-Q, good looks, not coup, good looks. And he was very handsome. And so Bathsheba, David can't sleep at night. He goes out on his roof. He's walking around. The roofs are in the Middle East are like patios. He's up there and he looks over at his neighbor. And there's Bathsheba taking a bath in her backyard because they don't have indoor plumbing. She's taking a bath. And it says, she was beautiful to behold. She is Miss Israel. But she's actually Mrs. Israel because... One of his mighty men, Uriah, that's his wife. So now he looks at his wife, Uriah's wife, and he wants her. He's the king. He can get away with it. Uriah's off in battle. So he sends a message to her. She comes, very flattered. The king of Israel wants to go to bed with me. She goes to bed with him. He sends her back, and she becomes pregnant. She gets the note. He's, he gets the note. I'm pregnant. Now just think about it. One time... The timing, it's not that easy to get pregnant. One time, she gets pregnant. So he sends a note and he goes, oh, what am I going to do? Scandal in the White House. Monica Lewinsky, blue dress moment. What do I do? I did not have sex with that girl. Right? Epic moments in our history. Scandal in the White House. Now it's like old hat, you know. <laughs> The uh, porn queen comes out against Donald Trump. It's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Just like different generation, I guess. But the scandal that was going to happen, David doesn't want it because he's the man after God's own heart. So he sends, he goes, well, just bring Uriah back. We do it immediately. She's pregnant, you know, and he'll, he'll sleep with his wife and we'll just cover it up. You know, maybe the baby came a few weeks early, whatever. So brings back Uriah. But Uriah is like, what's up? He won't go sleep with his wife the first night. David's sure. I mean, he's been to war. I mean, he's been in a battle. Surely he's going to sleep with his wife. 
but Uriah has so much integrity. He goes, my friends are out there fighting the Lord's battles and living in tents. I won't enjoy the pleasure of my wife. He's like, what? He goes, well, we need to lower his resolve. So he gets him drunk the second day, thinking, well, if he's drunk, he'll surely have no self-control and he'll go be with his wife. No, it doesn't do it. Even drunk, Uriah has more integrity right now than David does. So he signs his death warrant and he hands it to him. He says, take this message back. It's sealed with the king's signet. And in that, he's carrying his own death warrant. He tells Uriah when he hands it to him, can you imagine the, the face on Joab when he looks at it? It says, put Uriah in the hardest, hottest part of the battle and attack the wall. And when the people are attacking, withdraw from around him and let him be killed. Uriah hands that to his general, his own death warrant. And David has him murdered. David lusts after his wife. David commits adultery with his wife. David tries to cover it up with his wife. David kills the wife's husband. Through a process of discipline, the Lord deals with David. He says, the sword's never going to depart from your house, David. That's your discipline. You're going to have so much problem. You're going to have so much family drama in your family. The baby that, Uriah, that Bathsheba was pregnant with, it died. David fasted and prayed for seven days to try to rescue the baby, but it died. But then it says, the Lord ministered to David and Bathsheba. And they comforted one another because you see, they've made a mess now. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're married to somebody and it all started as an adulterous affair. You left the previous spouse. You left the previous children. You left those things. Or maybe you're the child here that you were devastated by your dad stepping out. You were devastated by your mom leaving. I remember my mom when I was 12 years old and tearing up a $500 check and throwing it in my dad's face because she had found the other woman that was pregnant that he had been living with on the weekends. We were leaving and my mom was in a rage and he had just given her his check, 500 bucks, but she tore it up, she gave him some very colorful words, threw it in his face and off we went and we're driving down the road and once I sensed, I was in the passenger seat, once I sensed she had calmed down, I was 12, I said very calmly, well mom, we're out on our own now, at least you could have kept the 500 bucks. She said, on second thought, that was a bad move. <laughs> but life's filled with drama, you guys. It's filled with heartache. It's filled with things. And yet, in the process, God gave them a child to bring his comfort and grace. A child named Peace. Did you know that? You see, she got pregnant again. and says in verse 6, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon, Shalom. I'm going to bring peace to you now. You've made a mess. Aren't you glad with the messes, God? You know, he, he's redemptive. His, his grace is constantly towards you. He brings his peace. And he brought it to them. As a matter of fact, the Lord wanted to even double down on his commitment to David and Bathsheba as he brought the grace of God to their family drama. He says, I want, I want you to know I've nicknamed your boy Sol, uh, Solomon, which means peace, and I've called him Jedediah. You never hear King Solomon referred to as Jedediah, but that's the nickname God gave him. Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. He said, I'm not only loving you with my grace, but I'm loving your boy and giving him a nickname beloved by me. 
You see, the incredible grace of God that constantly ministers to us is here for us today, even as it was through Jesus' family line. In verses 7 through 16, there's a bunch of other relatives, but then it tells us in verse 17, so all the generations from Adam to David are 14 generations, and from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. He says there's 42 generations, from Abraham to David, from David to the this, uh, the exile, and then to Christ. So 2,000 years, it took 42 generations. Here we are, 2,000 generations after Christ, we've had about 42 generations in our own lives. And you can look back and see the family history of grace in your family or my family, or maybe you're the first in your family line to get saved, and you can bring that grace to your family. You could be the first in this process. Well, probably the most startling, I think in the supernatural, in a wonderful way, but it was very uh, scandalous, was the story of Mary and Joseph. We have the carpenter and the virgin in verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This incredible work of grace that God brings to us now is delivered to us from a humble carpenter and his bride that is impregnated supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Now that's, even when Jesus was older, when the Pharisees charged him, they said, Moses is our father, Abraham is our father, we are not sons of fornication. Many believe in the Gospel of John that it had dogged Jesus for 30 years that his mom was unfaithful, that he was a child of fornication. For 30 years that rumor had been dogging him. Because who's going to believe that a virgin can get pregnant, right? Who's going to believe that? Don't know. But this virgin that comes on the scene, Jesus, who makes all of this possible for us, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin that you and I might become righteous and that we might shine now in our families with the love and the grace of God. And this year, as you go forward, you're either going to go forward in God's grace because you've dealt with things in your past, or you're going to go through this year looking in your rearview mirror or dragging so much baggage that you're not really free to be who God wants you to be this year. And you've got to have a couple of choices to make. You can forgive and let go and stop blaming your ancestors, your parents, the stepfather, the stepmother, whatever it might be. It tells us in Matthew 6, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness is the key to letting go. I forgive them. I say it out loud whether it's in my own prayer time, in the car, at home, maybe I have to say it to their face, maybe I have to write them a letter, I forgive you. I'm gonna let it go. I'm not gonna hang on to this anymore. I'm no longer going to hold you hostage to your failure from the past. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to let go? You don't know what they've done to me. I got my own garbage that I can look at. I don't have to know your garbage to know it's all garbage and smells the same. I want you to know, it's not a contest. Some people think it's a contest. 
No, more bad things happen to me. It's not a contest. If so, you're not winning. You're a slave. Hey, they did the best they could with what they had. They did the best they could with what they had. Maybe they weren't very faithful with that, but they did the best they could with what they had. Because you see, now it's on me. If I'm gracious to them, maybe other people will be gracious to me. Don't you see how that works? If you're merciful to others, that mercy will come back to you. But if you're a harsh, judgmental grudger, that will come back to you as well. So what do you want flowing back to you? So not only do I have to forgive, I also have to let go and move on. Paul the Apostle said it this way in Philippians 3.13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm letting go of that. I'm moving on. That's back there. It's water under the bridge. Can't do anything about it now. So let me just ask you, are you moving through life, you've forgiven, you've let go, and you're not a victim? You want to live in the victory that Romans 8.37 says, yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Are you moving through with victory? Because that's the real key, isn't it? Letting go, moving on. In my family, I have all kinds of fun drama. And my wife, we just thought we would double the drama and get married to each other. Because my wife has wonderful drama from her past. And I say that with a heartbrokenness. Because my wife's family, she was in a family where she had an uncle that sexually molested Tammy and all of Tammy's uh, girl cousins. And this man had five kids. And through a result of it, we were trying to figure out a way to get him arrested because he was a predator. And he had sexually abused Tammy he had been sexually training his own children for, to sexually abuse others. And his wife, Tammy's aunt, had a daycare in the house so that he could sexually abuse the kids in the daycare every day of the week. He uh, raped girls in the neighborhood. The guy was oh, something. So we began to pray. We were young Christians, and we're like, what do we do? How do we stop him? We have to get somebody within the statute of limitations, right, to charge him because Tammy was beyond the statute of limitations, Tammy's life was so devastated when she went to the third grade, the teacher had a parent-teacher conference with her parents, but because she had post-traumatic distress syndrome, the teacher told her, I'm sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Davis, but Tammy is retarded. She can't focus, she can't do anything because her uncle was sexually abusing her. She couldn't think straight in school. She'd be terrified at night because he told her, if you ever tell, I'll come to your house in the night and I will kill your mom and dad in their bed. So she'd wake at night with that thought. We didn't expect it to happen this way, but as we prayed through the years, we had a son, he was one year old, and at a family event, her uncle came out onto the dance floor and picked up our little one-year-old boy. And Tammy just came apart. She told her dad, go get Caleb from Tom. And the whole family saw Tammy's reaction, and the whole family the next week said, what's going on? And so Tammy finally started asking her cousins, and we found one within the statute of limitations. And we had him arrested. And the day we had him arrested, 
Tammy's 16-year-old cousin, a really lively girl. She was on the cheerleading squad. She came home and heard her dad was arrested. Her name was Nikki, and said, Mom, did they arrest dad for child abuse? She said, yes. She looked at her mom, Janet, and said, it's all true, Mom. And her mom called her a blankety-blank-blank, lion little whatever, and Nikki went upstairs and hung herself on her closet door. So we had a funeral that week for Tammy's cousin. In the coming years after that, two of her siblings, Steve, cut his throat and killed himself. Jeff jumped off the Prine Bridge and killed himself. So through all this process, Tammy's mom went to his house and was going to shoot him. She was going to kill him. She brought her husband's, Tammy's dad was a police officer, she brought his police revolver and she was going to kill him when he opened the door. But because we had our grandson, who was one year old, she ended up driving away because she couldn't bear the thought of Caleb coming to see his grandma in overalls in prison. It was the only time I ever thought sincerely about taking a person's life in my whole life. But it wasn't until Tammy and I were praying one day, and we ended up getting him in prison for 15 years, which was the maximum in Idaho for the offense that he committed. But I was so filled with hate and rage. And we were praying, and Tammy prayed in our prayer, Jesus, I forgive Tom. And I don't want him to go to hell, though he should go to hell. But Lord, I pray that you would save Tom. And it's in that moment that I heard my wife forgive her uncle, and I broke, because I thought, wow, if Tammy's going to forgive this jerk that I want to murder, then I probably should forgive him too. Out of that, Tammy ended up writing a nine-week Bible study called Hilden Set Free. That's translated in multiple languages and transformed thousands of women around the world. You can get it on Amazon. Go to Amazon. Healed and Set Free by Tammy Brown. And the crazy thing is, is that as we went through that process, we had to forgive, we had to let go, and we had to move on. But first, we had to see what was in our own heart, which was murder and hate as Christians. And we could not move forward as long as we were in the place of murder and hate. We had to forgive and move on. But some of you, you know, one in four are sexually abused. Most guys never report it, so it's probably more than that. See, the beautiful thing about the grace of God is it doesn't matter what your family drama is, it is sufficient to meet your needs. And as we close here today, and we just, we're going to pray, the worship team's going to come out. You know, I don't know what kind of brokenness you've been packing. I don't know what stuff that, you know, everybody deals with things differently. Some people just stuff it down and never think about it again, never look back. Other people, it's eating them up inside. But Jesus' love and grace that he wants to minister to you right now will change your life. It will change your world. 
It will change your marriage. It will change who you are as you move forward. You will discover how amazing it is to move through life with the lightness of giving all of that heartbreak to the Lord. Maybe you're the perpetrator because you see most people like to play the victim, but for all of us, I've discovered that we are victims and then we victimize. We have been hurt and we hurt others with our words or actions. So nobody in the room is innocent from whether you've been hurt and then hurting others. But God's grace will meet you right here. Now we had a baptism in the earlier service because a guy had heard about Pastor Rob and he lived in Japan and he came here from Japan to get baptized near their service. So we thought we'd leave open the baptismal. I'm willing to baptize anybody that wants to get baptized. We haven't organized, it's very spontaneous. But if in God's grace, you want to get baptized, I'm gonna lead us in prayer. Then we're just gonna sing a song and if you wanna come, great, we'll do the baptism. If not, we'll just end the service. But when you move from this place, may you move in the incredible resurrection, life and love of Jesus to be set free to be transformed. You don't have to be that hot mess emotionally inside anymore. You don't have to be that bitter person anymore. You don't have to hold that bitter grudge any longer. Because it's a weird thing, isn't it? Hating somebody. It's like drinking the poison that you think you're killing them with. It's like hitting myself in the head with a hammer thinking I'm killing them. I'm only harming myself. The reason I forgive and let go is because the Lord asked me to and I know that it will change me and I'll be free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just come to you right now and you have grace, Lord, for us in this, this day and what we need. And Lord, we just pray that you would draw us into that place to be able to let some things go today. Because we're just in an attitude of prayer right now. I want to pray specifically for those who have something they just want to lay at Jesus' feet and let go of today and move on from here. I want to ask you just to stand up right where you're at. We don't know what's going on. We just want to pray for you. So just stand up right where you're at. Nobody needs to know. God bless you over here. We want to pray that the Lord to touch you. God bless you guys right there. Anybody else? We're just going to pray for the Lord to minister to you to leave this at his feet. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? Lord, those who are standing right now, just by standing up, Lord, in faith, they're crying out to you. Lord, that you would bring their, your healing grace to their heart to help them forgive, to help them move forward, to put their eyes on you rather than the heartbreak that's been holding them back, that root of bitterness that has been there for so long. Lord, we pray as we give that to you right now by faith, that you would fill us with your love, your joy and your peace, the things that have been eluding us Lord, because of that infection in our own soul. 
Lord, I pray that you would pour out your blessing of grace and refresh them right now. Touch their hearts. Thank you, Lord. You guys can sit down. So we just continue in an attitude of prayer. If you want to give your heart to Jesus, the Savior of your soul, I just ask you to pray with me right now. Open your heart to him to be your Savior. Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. I need you, Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for me, for shedding your blood for me, for washing me clean. Fill me now with the power of your spirit, Lord. Help me walk with you. Give me your strength, your grace, for what this new year holds for me and my family. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're going to sing this chorus. We're not sure if anybody wants to get baptized, but if you've never been baptized, the Bible says repent, be baptized. I know you just wore your Sunday's clothes, but it's okay. Just come up on this side over here and we'll baptize you. And if not, we'll just uh, sing this chorus. So uh, let's stand together. And if anybody comes, we'll go for it. And if not, we'll just wrap it up.